You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning. We are talking about miracles. Um, sometimes when you're studying the Bible... You open the book, you pray, you trust God, you start reading and start studying. And what happened to me uh, this past week is I had more questions than answers. So I started writing down my questions and I thought, well, maybe some of my questions are your questions when it comes to miracles. So today we're doing a Q&A type format, weirdest sermon outline I've ever put together. So if you got a Connect card, don't take it out because it's too weird. Just kidding. Take, take, take out the Connect card. And so the question is this, do you believe in miracles? And we're going to define miracles in a very specific way, but that's a big question. Now, I hope you realize that the Judeo-Christian faith is grounded, it's predicated upon, it's founded in the supernatural. And what that simply means is, is that God intervened in time and space to reveal himself, to give us his word, truth. To give us his son, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. Folks, that's supernatural. And then today we're going to close with the resurrection picture because that's part of our passage. And one of the ultimate miracles in life is Jesus Christ, the God-man, crucified, buried, risen from the grave. He's alive. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you believe in the supernatural. Now... I think you would agree with me, we live in a culture today that's very humanistic, very naturalistic, and basically says, and students, this is a very important phrase, we have a closed system. In other words, what you see is what you get. There's no outside force, God, uh, invading our world. And yet the Bible says it's just the opposite. Let me give you a picture of that from the New Yorker. Adam Gopnik, who's a, quite a spokesman for the new atheist, says this. He says, we know that, notice this, in the billions of years of the universe's existence, and this is quite a remarkable phrase, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intercession with the laws of nature. That's the worldview that is dominant today. In other words, there's no God who intervenes. There's no revelation of truth from above. There's no Jesus Christ buried, risen from the grave, alive today, saving people. I sometimes like to joke, say, okay, you don't believe in miracles? I introduce them to my wife. This is Ella, my wife. It is a miracle that she married me. And all the Westwood people said, I heard the females win that amen out. So we come to a passage this morning that's all about the miraculous. That's all I could say. I read this, and I said, you know what? This is really about miracles. We've seen a ton of miracles already in the book of Acts. But one passage, two encounters really cause us to say, hey, do we really believe in miracles? So if you have your Bibles, turn there, please. Acts chapter 9, again, two case scenarios. Peter's back on the scene. We've seen Peter quite a bit. He's kind of the spokesperson for the first 10 years, and then he disappears. Paul shows up. And so, Peter, stand with me. Get your blood flowing. Uh, follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible, and uh, check out these two really cool passages. Acts 
So the gospel's expanding, right? Acts 1.8, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now we're moving out. We're getting out into Gentile territory. Joppa is, remember Jonah? He was called to go to Nineveh, Gentile. He said, no, he went to Tarsus the other way, and we have the book of Jonah. This is the same place. We're in this vicinity. We're on the coast of Israel in a place called Joppa and Caesarea Maritime. So Gentile territory, coast, getting away a little bit from Jerusalem. <clears throat> and so Luke writes, as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda, which is uh, 10 miles from the coast, from Joppa. Then he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. We've talked about this a lot in Luke. When you're paralyzed as a male in the ancient world, it's not good, right? Culture of honor and shame. You can't work, agrarian society. You can't provide for your family. There's a lot of hurt. So this guy's hurting, okay? Bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And by the way, the phrase get up is the Greek phrase for resurrection. It's the same term used for Jesus. Aeneas, resurrect. Get up out of bed. Stop being paralyzed. Look what happened. Immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Quite a remarkable story. Secondly, Acts 9, 36-43. Now, we're heading to the coast, Joppa. This is Jonah's territory. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. What a beautiful testimony. In those days, she became sick. She died. And then we go through the purification process. That's all Luke is outlining. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs so people could come and visit. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who begged him, don't delay in coming to us. So Peter got up, went with them. When he arrived, they led him up to the room upstairs. And all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while uh, they were with him. Then Peter sent them out of the room. He knelt down and prayed. And turning towards the body, said... Tabitha, same word, resurrection. Tabitha, be raised, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. Then he called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa. Notice the refrain, same thing. And many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed on many days in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. By the way, uh, I've been to the Tanner's home. Archaeologists have found that. It's right in the old city of Joppa. It's a fact that it still exists, and it goes all the way back to the first century. It's quite remarkable, the archaeological historical evidence to validate the Gospel of Luke. So please be seated. So again, as I said, I had a lot more questions than I did answers, and so I just said, you know what, I'm going to write down my questions, I'm going to use that as an outline and see if this works for all of us. So, if you have your Connect card, and I would encourage you to take it out, because this is a very important message. In a naturalistic, humanistic, only test tube kind of world, we have to see if miracles are valid, both biblically and extra-biblically. And so... Number one, what are miracles? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good question, right? 
And today we use the word kind of loosely. Do you remember uh, 1980 when the women's hockey team won the gold medal? Remember the movie that came out? How many of you have seen Miracle on Ice? Now, folks, here's the deal. That was an improbable thing, right? Nobody could believe that that was going to happen, but it truly wasn't a miracle in the most technical and biblical sense. What is a miracle? I like how Webster's defines it. Miracles are extraordinary events manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. It's really simple, but it's just precise. It's God intervening. It's divine intervention. It's God showing up, and at times when we least expect. Now, let me show you a passage to just substantiate that. In the Gospels, you'll see Jesus constantly doing miracles. John the Baptist was quite a servant. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He's in prison. He's struggling, and he's thinking his life's coming to an end. And so he says to his disciples, would you go to Jesus and do me a favor? Ask Jesus if he's truly the Messiah. Is he really the Savior? Why is he doing that? He's doubting. He's struggling, folks. You're thrown in prison for, you know, being the forerunner of the Messiah? Here's what Jesus says to John's disciples. Go back to John and tell him this. Follow along with me. It's on the screen. Go and report to John, Jesus said, the things you have seen and heard, okay? Things you have been eyewitnesses to, things you have heard with your ears. The blind receive sight, that's a big deal. The lame walk, as we've already seen. Those with skin diseases, lepers are healed. In the ancient world, to be a leper was almost like being dead. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. You know what Jesus said? John, I know it's tough. You're in prison. You're doubting. You're struggling with your faith. Look to the signs. Look to the realities that Jesus Christ has done some miraculous things. Believe through the testimonies of what you've seen and heard. Question number two. Can a rational person believe in miracles? I personally believe the answer is resounding yes. And so here's what I'd like you to think about. Think about this. If we believe there is a God who created the world of space, time, matter, I believe this. We have already accepted the idea of the miraculous. Would you agree with me that when you look at creation, there is a miracle? Psalm 19 verse 1 It's one of the cool statements about general revelation of God. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. On the screen this morning is a picture of a galaxy that's a neighbor to us. It's called the Andromeda. Think about this. There are billions of stars and planets in this one galaxy. And guess how many galaxies there are? Billions in our universe, and now they're talking about multiverse. Think about creation, God revealing himself. The psalmist says the heavens declare God's majesty, his glory. Every day we can look up, and he testifies of himself. I think... It's illogical to think we have billions of galaxies and stars and planets within each galaxy and not testify of the creator. 
I think it takes much more faith to believe that this just happened over time, chance, and progress. And so, yes, I believe miracles are logical. Question three, what about fake miracles and charlatans? I think if you've been around this topic at all, you have to ask that question. And here's the deal, folks. There are people who make huge livings, resources off of uh, being charlatans of the Christian faith. They mock the gospel. They fake the miracles. The data's out there. I could refer you to resources. But Jesus talked about this a little bit. Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles? And by the way, the Greek word there is dunamis, do many powerful things, things that looked like a demonstration of God interventions in your name. Notice how Jesus is going to respond. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you lawbreaker. Folks, that's shocking. That's sobering. And there are a lot of charlatans out there. Ellen and I have dear friends whose daughter was terminally ill um, a number of years ago. And they followed one of these faith healers literally around the country, hoping, praying, anticipating that God would work and heal their daughter. She died. And they were disillusioned. He was found out to be a charlatan. And boy, the challenges of recalibrating your faith and putting your eyes, focusing in on Jesus. We need discernment when we think through the issue of true miracles, biblical miracles, God intervention, and those who are charlatans. Question number four, can we prove miracles happen? How would you answer that question? Can we prove miracles happen? Here's what G.K. Chesterton said, and I really appreciate this. He said, the most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. Really? When was the last time you experienced a God intervention? A true miracle according to the biblical definition. And so I agree with G.K. Chesterton. I agree with that presupposition. But the question I had to ask this week is, is there any evidence for miracles? And I have some encouraging news for you guys. There's a lot of evidence, biblically, extra biblically, and yes, today, all around the world, God is intervened. So let me give you four evidences. If you're taking notes, number one, evidence number one, the life of Christ. We have to start there. Please realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospel accounts, are basically biographies of Jesus, and they are historical. They are literal uh, truths about his life that have been validated from extra-biblical literature. It's just not his disciples trying to create some sort of narrative to get people to follow Jesus. Oh, no. Jesus was a miracle worker. Even the staunchest of atheists would attest to the fact that he lived. And yes, there was miracles taking place in his life. And so we covered this a few weeks ago, October 3rd, our community launch. We looked at John 14. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Either he is what he said he is, or he's a liar or a lunatic. You really don't have a lot of options. I truly believe he is who he said he is. 
In John 14, we covered this, but I want to review it with you. Jesus said this, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, he's talking about the Trinity. He's talking about there's one God, three persons. That's a mystery, that's hard. I can imagine if I were the disciples, you said, oh, I and the Father are one. That's hard. That's a big pill to swallow, theologically. But then he says, if that's too hard, let me show you something else. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So if it's hard to capture that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, working in unity to accomplish his good and acceptable and perfect will, believe the miracles, guys. You've seen me change the water into wine. You've seen a gal who has died raised from the grave. You've seen 5,000 be fed with a few loaves and fishes. It's empirical. Remember what you've seen. Remember what you've heard. Remember what you experienced. And boy, did they record it. Secondly, evidence number two, the eyewitness testimonies. We've already talked about this, but look how John closes his gospel. It's pretty remarkable. Here's what he says, notice. He says, Jesus performed many other signs, that is the technical word for miracles, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Here's the encouragement. The Gospel of John is real simply crafted. There's seven I am statements. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's seven miracles. Seven out of 38, John chose to prove one thing, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God. John says, I could have recorded so much more. And metaphorically, he says the libraries couldn't contain all of what Jesus did in our midst in those three years. But I chose seven so you might believe that he is the Christ. One of the most miraculous miracles in the Gospel of John is Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the grave. Folks, that's a big deal. But you know what I find interesting about that? Many believed, and many who experienced Lazarus' death saw his resurrection, still didn't believe. Why? Hardened hearts, presuppositions against the supernatural, presupposition against this Galilean rabbi named Jesus. And there's just so many things, even when people are raised from the grave, they can see it and still not believe that happened in the New Testament. Third, and I love this, Evidence number three, the objective medical community. So why do I bring that up today? Because I did some research. I read a couple books uh, throughout the week that really inspired me to help me understand this huge topic. I, I put a reference in your Connect card. One that I'd highly recommend is by Craig Keener. Uh, in 2011, he, uh, he wrote 1,200 pages as a New Testament scholar of what he discovered all across the world, he went on a journey. A new book, a summary of that is coming out literally this week. In 2018, Lee Strobel went and did his homework globally and wrote a book. But what I found interesting as I started reading these books, I said, wow, the medical profession is more on the line of believing in miracles than not believing. That was an aha moment for me. And then I stumbled across a gal. It's quite a remarkable story. Her name is Dr. Diane M. Comp. So picture this. She's a medical doctor. She's also a professor at Yale University. 
She's at the top of her game, highly respected. In her early years of medicine, working in pediatrics, cancer kids, tough, tough line of work, she basically said she was an agnostic slash atheist. You know what happened? She started to see God interventions in these little kids' lives. She started to see the miraculous happen month after month, year after year, and over a span of time, God intervened in her own life. She became a Christian. She wrote a book, highly recommended, A Window to Heaven When Children See Life and Death. Folks, this comes from an agnostic atheist, someone who wasn't a Christian with presuppositions, but she saw the interventions. She heard the gospel, and her life was transformed. The medical community today is on the side of the miraculous, which is really interesting. And then finally, what evidence? Evidence number four, the objective, and I use that word very importantly, not subjective, the objective scholarly research. And what do I mean by objective? Objective is real simple, that it's documented, that it's validated, that you can go back and get the eyewitness testimony, that people will stand up and say, yeah, this was me, and this is how God intervened, and here I am today. There's four books that are in the bibliography. You gotta get Keener's book if you wanna study this more. Get Lee Strobel's book. And by the way, you know what's interesting about Craig Keener? He's a New Testament scholar at Asbury Theological Seminary today. He's at the top of his game. He's known world, worldwide. He was originally an atheist. And I read his testimony this past week. I didn't know it. And God intervened in his life. Showed him the glorious gospel of his son. Craig became a Christian and today is flourishing uh, for the kingdom and glory of God. Lee Strobel's, if you don't know that name, you should. He was a agnostic atheist and an antagonist to Christianity. He was a journalist working for the Chicago Tribune. And what happened? God intervened. You know how he intervened? He went on a search to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. As a good journalist, let's see if this stuff holds up to journalism. And so for about a year and a half, Lee Strobel gave his life to disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the most miraculous events in history. And guess what happened? He had an epiphany. He had a changed life. And for the past decades, he has been on a mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Metaxas has a good book. And then, of course, the classic one goes back to the 40s, C.S. Lewis. So, I do believe there's evidence. I just tried to give you a little bit. And uh, question number five, why do miracles happen? And I think that's a really uh, important question. God has a plan for miracles. And so the Greek word for miracles, as we saw in the passage before, is semeios. And you know what it literally means? Sign. Let me show you a picture of a sign driving through the community. Uh, the community went gangbusters with this one. If you look at that sign, that's literally on a street corner. There's five go 30 miles an hour. Do you think they got the point? Slow down. You know, you drive into uh, Bailey Grove out in Adele, you know what the signs say? Stop speeding. Kids live here, you jerk. And you just humbly kind of go five and get to your house. But miracles are signs. And here's the question. A sign to what? 
Folks, a sign that there's something greater out there. This isn't a closed system. The world isn't natural. Yes, we, we have today, we have what we see, what we get, but God invaded. He created. He revealed himself through his word, through the prophets, through the apostles, but ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Every miracle points to God and Jesus and the purposes he has for your life and mine. And so when miracles come your way, Take him as a signpost from God. Take him as a clue that, yes, he is alive and he's working on your behalf. Question six, do miracles happen today? So I got in trouble when I was ordained. I graduated from Bible school in 1987. I sat with seven uh, pastors, lead pastors. I was a youth pastor. And one of the questions was, Keith, are you a cessationist? And I knew that question was coming. Do you know what cessationist means? That after the apostolic age, all the miracles, signs, and wonders cease. And I was not all the way back then. I thought I was in hot water. I thought I wasn't going to get ordained. I thought I was out the door. So I gave my argument as to why I wasn't a cessationist, that miracles ceased, you know, in the apostolic age. And boy, there was a lot of chatter. And my blood pressure went up. And I'm waiting for, hey, what's next? Pastor Lowry, my mentor of, of 11 years there, what a blessed man. He says, you know, Keith had a pretty good argument. How about we move on? I was like, I like that. <laughs> they moved on. I got ordained and pastored there 11 years. It never came up. We didn't have to, you know, we just agreed to disagree. Today, I am absolutely a thousand times more convinced that God does the supernatural that he is at work. We at Westwood Church say what? God is moving, and we have to watch for him moving. Now, let's go to our passage to substantiate this. Acts 9, 36 through 37, notice this, because I think it's a very important point, sometimes missed. In Joppa, there was who? A disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works, acts of charity. In those days, she became sick and died. Folks, this is the church in that area. This is the local church. This is the New Testament church, albeit it's the first century. But if God did it then, why wouldn't he do it now? Why? There's no rational reason to think that somehow it ended there. It's illogical. Now, we have to be discerning, right? They're charlatans. Jesus warned us. The data's out there. But we believe God is moving, and sometimes through miracles. Now, let's tie it all together. How can the miraculous change your life and mine? And I hope the application comes directly from the text this morning. So I want to share with you four truths from this passage that I believe should impact us, change our life. Truth number one, miracles testify that God is working and Jesus is alive. Miracles testify that God is working and Jesus is alive. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is moving? Do you believe Ecclesiastes 3.14, God works so we'll stand in awe of him? Do you believe that Jesus is alive right now, as real today as he was 2,000 years ago? Folks, that's the Christian message. That's the gospel. So look at Acts 9.34. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Please remember every miracle is supernatural 
and comes from the heart of God who wants to reveal the power and glory of his gospel. Jesus Christ is the one who healed this individual. Secondly, truth number two, miracles testify that God hears and answers prayer. And I love this. Look at verses 40 and 41. Because prayer is often in scripture, even in Jesus' ministry, was part of the miraculous. Then Peter sent them all out of the room. Jesus did that with Jairus' daughter. He knelt down and prayed. Jesus did that. He prayed to his father. And turning toward the body, he said, Tabitha, resurrect, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, sat up, gave her his hand and helped her stand up. I want to encourage you because the Bible is very clear. The book of James says this, that when there's a need for intervention, when there's a need for healing, and folks, it's just not physical. There's emotional healing that needs to take place. There's psychological healing. There's stuff in our past that we live in those dark days that trickle on for decades. And God wants to set you free for Christ. You know what James says? When you're struggling and you need healing, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, call for the elders of the church and they'll come and they'll anoint you with oil. And here's what it says. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. Not always. That's not praying on demand, but God is at work. And I want to encourage you, if there is a need for physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological healing, engage the elders. And we'll set a special time, anoint with oil, we'll pray and pray by faith that God intervenes and he does something miraculous. And so let me share with you a story that I hope you'll receive because it's just true, it's how it happened. As a former youth pastor going all the way back to Cincinnati, we had a darling gal in our youth ministry. Her name is Brooke, it was Brooke Schaefer back then. In junior high, I remember going to Michigan for her first surgery. She had a rare uh, tumor, brain tumor, a rare disease that was studied globally. 30 years later, she's had 25 brain surgeries, just imagine. Brooke married. Her and John uh, doing well. She's a nurse, Children's Hospital in Cincinnati. Not too long ago, one of her eyes totally failed. The uh, tumor just worked against uh, retina and seeing, and they literally had to sew one of her eyes shut. And it was hard to watch and to see. We kept praying. Brooke kept believing. God kept working in her heart, and her heart was so tender. Earlier this year, her other eye started to fail. And she started to lose peripheral vision. She started to only see kind of cloudy things and then it got real dark. And she was losing her sight. She had to resign from her position at Children's Hospital. It was her choice, not theirs. Just to honor that she couldn't really do her work, Children's Hospital Oncology. Tough job. And so for months, she was living almost blind. Dad, Dale, who's a dear friend, had an epiphany. And he contacted one of his doctors, again, 30-year history of doctors and medicine and surgeries. And he said, what about this? I think this may work. The doctors collaborated all across the country. And they performed another surgery on Brooke. They were hoping. The church was praying. Everybody was interceding. Brooke came out of surgery, and she was blind. She couldn't see at all. For three months, Brooke was blind. Guess what? Brooke didn't stop praying. John didn't stop praying. The church didn't stop praying. We kept interceding. One day, Brooke got out of bed, 
went into the bathroom. And sometimes she'd bump into a wall or a door and she bubble wrapped basically their whole house. That's how, how it worked in, in those months. She looked in the mirror that morning and she saw Brooke Bargainer. She began to weep. She called her husband, John. John came in. And Brooke today, one of her eyes was restored. She's back at work, Children's Hospital. Brooke wrote a five-page letter on her testimony, sent it to us recently. We talked to her last night. It was beautiful and it was emotional. There's a few things that were very miraculous about this. One, her father's epiphany. Dad intervened and thought, you know what, maybe, just maybe, he contacted the doctors. They collaborated and said yes, they performed the surgery. They thought the surgery failed. The church kept praying and sometimes all night prayer meetings. And next thing you know, Brooke walks in after three months of being totally blind, she sees. A few weeks after that incident, as Brooke was recovering her sight, she was having devotions. And this is Brooke's testimony, and she is a darling, darling girl. She said, God spoke to her and said this, Brooke, I told your dad to tell the doctors what to do. Brooke says it was a miracle. And guys, I look at that and I say, Lord, I stand in awe of you. One of the most godly, beautiful individuals that we've known our whole ministry career because we got to know Brooke at junior high. God chose to let her go blind and then to heal. And guess what's happening in Cincinnati? Her coworkers at Children's Hospital because she's back to work. Our church in Cincinnati standing in awe of God. It points to who? The healer, Jesus Christ. So, third... Truth number three, miracles testify that salvation is the ultimate miracle. Please don't miss this because this is remarkable. Twice in this passage, Acts 9, 34 through 35. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and did what? Turned to the Lord. I think the ultimate miracle in this passage is not that an eight-year paralytic or someone who died, was resurrected. Those are beautiful and powerful miracles. The ultimate miracle, folks, is a transformed life. All of these are signs to what? That Jesus Christ heals. He heals the sinful heart. He heals the broken heart. He heals the distance, the, the need for reconciliation between uh, man and God. He's the ultimate healer. And so another passage, look at verses 41 through 43. Then he called the saints and widows, presented her alive. This is Tabitha. This became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And so folks, the testimony of God advances when he intervenes, he does the miraculous, but the ultimate healing is the soul, reconciled relationship with God. Now finally, truth number four. Miracles testify to our future resurrection and restoration. Please don't miss this. Acts 9.34, Peter said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Same word for resurrection. Be resurrected and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Look at verse 40. Tabitha, be resurrected. Get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. One of the things that God wants us to embrace through the miraculous is this, that he is a God who restores, that he is a God who heals, that he is a God who renews. 
And folks, we live in a broken world and our lives are broken. And when God comes, as we put our faith and trust in him, and as we pray, there are times where he restores us physically. He restores us spiritually, emotionally. He restores who we are. But the ultimate goal is that there is a restoration to come. And so let me close with a passage. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. It's a resurrection passage. The New Testament church was struggling to understand what the future looked like, what happens to me when I die. So Paul writes for Thessalonians in part to give clarity that there is hope for the future. That in Christians, we don't, as Christians, we don't die. We fall asleep and there is a resurrection to come. And so I hope you have your Bibles open. Track with me. It's a pretty long passage. 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep. Isn't that a beautiful word for Christians who die? Those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so there's the kicker. The ultimate testimony of our faith is the reality that not only did Jesus live, but he died and was resurrected. We believe that. In the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So let's say you have a loved one, like my father passed away many years ago. There's coming a day where dad's going to be resurrected to be with the Lord. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. And notice this next phrase. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, do what? Bring encouragement to each other with these words. Folks, miracles are an ultimate sign of the restoration to come. The resurrection of our body from the grave. That there is hope today for our future that this is not a closed system. We don't live just in a natural environment. God has intervened ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. And it begs the question, do you believe this? Let me close with one photo. This comes from Jerusalem. It's an actual picture of one of the tombs that they found. Notice the stone that's rolled away. The historical reality is this that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, it's called the incarnation. He lived, we know that, he was a real person. Yes, he taught and his teachings transcend time and influence greatly. He performed miracles as we've talked about today. But ultimately, Jesus Christ came to die, was buried, but here's the thing, he rose from the grave. And so when the women came to the tomb that day, they didn't think that was gonna happen. They were just coming to anoint the body to do what they did in the ancient world, to care for, to mourn. And guess what? The angel said, he is not here, he is risen. And we can hang our hat on that ultimate miracle, folks. Jesus Christ is alive. I trust you believe this. Let me welcome our worship team to come forward. We'll close with a song. 
And let me pray for us. Father, we stand in awe of you this morning. You work to bring glory to your name. And Father, we declare that you are the God of all creation, that you created, and all we have to do is to look up and to look out. The heavens declare your glory, Lord, your majesty, your power, your might. But Father, thank you so much today for the revelation of yourself through your word. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who lived, who taught, who healed, but ultimately was crucified, was buried, and rose from the grave. Father, I pray in Jesus' name we would never take for granted that reality, that sign that gives us hope not only in this life, but for all eternity. And Father, we pray this morning that the gospel would be embraced in our life, that we're sinners separated from God and that God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin. And we put our faith and trust in Christ. We can be restored. We can be resurrected. So we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, that your spirit would work these truths in our life. And as we said earlier, Isaac, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And so, Lord, we glorify you. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.